Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, we pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. And I, I've been, each week we've been reading that entire prayer, but I just want to just have you look at that part of the prayer in order that we may know you better. Had you pray that for your neighbor just a moment ago, that they would know you. And I want you to consider it as we begin today, that this is what it's all about right here, is a relationship with the living God. And any efforts of spirituality or religiosity or church attendance or whatever that falls short of knowing him better, let's just get rid of those things and let's recognize that this is what it's all about. It's about a Father in heaven who has made a way through his Son and by the presence of his Spirit for us to enjoy a vital life-giving relationship with him. And this is why so often I say when I have you mingle, give life to one another because what this is talking about is life of the Spirit that's flowing from us and is a contagion that we can spread and that can be passed on to those around us. So we make that our prayer and my prayer that we will know him better. As we come to chapter 4, verse 17, it's important, and I really have been emphasizing this because uh, we turned a corner in, in chapter 4 where Paul suddenly says and calls us in, to this and says, Therefore, you must now live a life, walk a walk that is worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. And my concern right here is that we forget chapters 1 through 3 and we immediately go into this thing about walking a walk worthy of our calling because chapter 4 begins to move into a lot of practical application. And my concern is that too often in church, we want to talk about how you should walk, but we tend to forget about where it is that we should sit. And until we understand where it is that we are to be sitting, we will never be able to walk the kind of walk that God has intended us to walk. In fact, we'll be frustrated and defeated. If we try to go on in Ephesians chapter 4, looking at all this practical application and, 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 and seeing it and determining to live it out, we're going to fall flat on our faces every time. It becomes legalism. It becomes a, a, a situation of... How do I win God's favor by my personal goodness? And if you could earn God's favor by your personal goodness, Jesus Christ would have never have gone to the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross because none of us could be good enough. And yet we position people in, in positions of spiritual leadership. We hold them up as if somehow they've obtained something uh, on their own strength, of their own merit that we need to follow, kind of like uh, the, the kid who gets the best grades in class, you know, and boy, I wish I was like that. And we fail to realize that the people that Jesus associated with more, most would have been the people considered the greatest failures in many ways. So it begins with where you sit in Christ, and then out of that, we can begin to, to move on with what we're going to see today. So verse 17, Paul says this. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do 
in the futility of their thinking. Paul's distinguishing here between believers and unbelievers, and he gives us the statement of the potential of futility of thinking. I was a really young believer when a proverb just seemed to come alive to me. It was actually Proverbs 14.12, and it repeats itself in 16.25, where the Bible says this. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. That's a futile path. It's a path that we get ourselves on that somehow we've convinced ourselves that, that somehow it's, it's, it's the way to experience life to the fullness if, if that's to be had, but it continually leaves us empty, okay? And Paul's saying, leave that path that, if you're honest with yourself, is leaving you empty. The path that causes you to wake up the next day wondering what in the world I was thinking. What did I do? Okay, and he defines it this way, verse 18, these, these Gentiles, these unbelievers, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So there's a couple of things to notice here. There is a life that God has intended for you, and then there's a life that God hasn't intended for you, and whether you're going to choose the life that God hasn't intended for you, or the life that God has intended for you, boils down to this matter of pushing God away and saying, I don't care what God says, this is what I'm going to do. That's where the hardening begins. And over in Hebrews, the Bible says, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. And of course, if you understand what the rebellion is, Harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. This is when Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And the whole way they're grumbling and complaining because they're not sure about what the future holds. They don't like the fact that the promised land that God is giving them has giants in it. They can't even see that God is with them and that giants mean nothing when that God is with them. And they're saying how much better they had it before when they lived in bondage in Egypt then they're experiencing walking with God. And God says, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. And right here, there's some practical application. Are you pushing away the promptings of God? Are you missing out on the blessings that God has for you out of fear of something in this world you might miss out on, out of fear of something that God might ask of you? or because you find security in the world system and you'd rather rest in the world system than to trust in God's plan for your life? That's what this is talking about right here. Verse 19. Notice the progression here. Having lost all sensitivity. So looking at this whole thing, Gentiles, futility of their thinking, buying into plans that don't work because it contradicts God, uh, darkened understanding, because they're separated from the life God has from them due to the hardening of their hearts. Then we get to this having lost all sensitivity. Romans 1 talks about a handing over that takes place when we continually reject God. But right here, it's using this word sensitivity. 
having lost sensitivity, having lost sensitivity to the things of God. And perhaps the best image Scripture gives us of this is a picture of nerve endings being seared with a hot iron. Get the picture of that. Rejection of God is like applying a hot iron to nerve endings until the nerve endings have lost any capacity to feel anything whatsoever. And and this is what God says, if you push me away long enough, eventually you'll come to a place where you will no longer be in tune or have a a capacity to receive the things of the Spirit. He's saying, don't live like that. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves up over to sensuality, given themselves over to flesh, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. When we were in Israel, uh, I, I think one of the most significant places, and there were several of them, uh, was at Caesarea Philippi. Because in Caesarea Philippi, there's an altar set up to the god, the Greek god of Pan, right? And uh, it's, it's a cave here, and they had put a fancy facade. Most of it's gone now. But, uh, but, but this cave was considered to be the pit of hell, actually the, the exit and entry point of demons, interesting that it's right in this area and you can almost get the picture of Jesus with his disciples looking upon this altar to pan when Jesus asks the disciples who do men say that I am and they went through this whole list of you know possibilities Elijah Jeremiah one of the prophets and Jesus said well who do you say that I am and it's right there that Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. Now your name is going to be called Peter. Now your name is going to be called Rock. And upon this rock, the rock of faith and understanding, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you almost get the picture of that. See that, 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 that cave there? the gate of hell, those demons are rendered powerless because of who I am and your understanding of it. It's a beautiful picture. But what's going on here in the Greek culture is no belief in an eternal existence. If you have no belief in an eternal existence, then what does that leave you with? Well, it it leaves you with the here and now. And if all you have is the here and now, then why would you give up anything, the pursuit of anything that this world has to offer? Why not just go for it? In fact, I don't know how many times in my young faith, and I love to refer to my young faith because everything's just coming alive at that point. You know, when you're a new believer, you're just eating it up and just realizing, you know, if I'm not going to live my life for God, then I might as well just go do anything in the world I want to do and without limits. And that was the Greek culture. In fact, right here at the altar, the babies were sacrificed. 
And, and what it was about was it was about trying to guarantee, Pan being a fertility god, trying to guarantee successful harvest so that you could have the kind of resources and money that you needed to do whatever it is you wanted to do. So sacrifice those babies. There's a short story called The Little Shop of Horrors, okay? It's been made into a movie uh, two different times, and I haven't seen the most recent one. There's a very real sense to which it's not worth watching, The Little Shop of Horrors. But there's also a very real sense to which it's a parable that if you grab it, it's frightening as all get out, because here's this meat-eating plant. That's what it is. And the meat-eating plant has a voice, and that voice says, feed me. And so this man brings his plant home and, and a little bit of hamburger, and the plant, whenever it's hungry, says, feed me. And so he gives the plant a little bit of hamburger, but, but, but the plant starts to grow. And so now it's not just a little bit of hamburger. Now it's meat, you know? The plant wants meat. And now this plant is getting expensive. Sounds like raising kids. Huh? And his voice starts to get deeper. Feed me. Feed me. And pretty soon the guy's like, I can't afford to keep feeding this plant, but somehow he's addicted to his pride of this plant and he wants to keep taking care of it. So pretty soon he's bringing home cats and then it's growing to dogs. Eventually he's throwing a horse into this plant. And finally... He himself is swallowed up by this very plant whose voice has grown to this hard, feed me. <laughs> and this is what Paul's talking about here. It's continual lust for more. The flesh will not be satisfied. Paul says over in uh, Galatians 5, talking about the same kind of situation and how do we get victory over the demands of the flesh he says i say then walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill you will not get caught up in trying to satisfy this insatiable desire of the flesh and what it boils down to is what are we going to pursue what's going to be our chief pursuit in life is it going to be to, 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 to take care of the flesh or is it going to be to go after the things of god and this is where the tension lies in fact, earlier in Ephesians, we saw these words, as for you, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world or went after the flesh and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Wow, the spirit at work in those who are disobedient. So now, not only do you have the flesh saying, feed me, but you've got the spirit out there in opposition to God who's trying to tell you God doesn't have your best interest in mind. You got to go after your flesh. You got to feed that if you want to be happy. And so then we get all twisted and confused and we wonder what voice to listen to. And what we need to realize is what Jesus said, that the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the fullest. And we've got to believe that. Going on, verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. What does that mean? It means don't give your flesh any glory. Your flesh isn't what led you to Jesus. I mean, there was a time uh, when I was a new believer when I stumbled, and I literally began to convince myself that drugs could give me greater intimacy with God. And it's a lie. 
Drugs have nothing to do with it. You didn't come to know Christ this way. Verse 21. Or did I skip something? You did not come to know him this way. You, however, did not come to know Christ this way. Then going on, verse 21. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is Jesus. And notice those four verbs right there. To know him, you did not come to know him this way, right? But you heard about him. So it's about relationship. It's about hearing. And that's why we're here today to hear the truths of God. You are taught and you are in him. All four of those. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness. Did you catch those words? Your old self, which is being corrupted. There was actually a uh, punishment in the days of Rome where I don't know what, what kind of crime you had to commit, but they would literally tie a dead body to your back and make you walk around with a dead body. Can you imagine the horror of that? And what Paul's saying, you're still walking around with a dead body on your back. And he's saying it's time to take that dead body off. It's because you're trying to live, you're trying to merge your old self with the new life that God has for you. And it says it's time to change clothes. It's time to change, change, change that. Get that old man off and begin to live in the newness that God has for you. And what a struggle it is. Hello. What a struggle it is. I want to do what God wants me to do. And I can come to church and I can get fired up and I can go to the altar and say, yes, I want what God has for me. But then I leave here and all of a sudden there's that dead body on me again. And I love that tension in Romans 7 where Paul says, I want to do the right thing, but I keep doing the wrong thing. And every time I choose to do the right thing, there's evil again right there working against me so that I don't do the thing that I want to do, the thing that would please God. Instead, I keep doing the thing that contradicts what God wants me to do. And then he comes to this climax and he says, who will rescue me from this body, this dead body on my back, this body of sin and death? And then he gives the answer. And he says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And there's the answer. You take something off, my old self. You put something on, Christ Jesus and the life that he has for me. It's about getting your eyes on Jesus. Can I encourage you? Can I encourage you in your walk? We get so frustrated and disillusioned because we make promises to God and we don't fulfill them. We think we're going to do it out of our own determination. And I'm telling you, the key is Jesus. Put Jesus on. Keep your eyes on him. He is your victory. He's your hope. He is your strength. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. All right. How are we doing? You tracking with me okay? Good deal. The old man. I want to be like Jesus. Jesus, thank you right now that you accept me 
just as I am. I do confess that I have this problem with the old man, that somehow I just keep carrying him around. Somehow there's security in carrying around this old dead self. But I realize right now it's only slowing me down and keeping me from becoming everything that you desire for me to be. So by faith, I take off the old man and I just lay him down there and bury him. And I put on the new man, Jesus Christ, in me. By faith, you make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name. This is why we get baptized. Because in baptism, what's happening is we go underwater, the old man dying, we come out of the water, the new man in Christ. Same picture. If you make it the picture of a dead body tied to someone's back, being taken off, stripped away, in order that we might live in the freedom and fullness that Christ has for us. This is God's intention. I'm going to go on with our scriptures, so let's, let's press on together, okay? Uh, this one little analogy that, uh, that maybe you've heard before, but it's valuable. It's a parable of two dogs, and this man has two dogs, and they're always fighting with each other. And someone asked the man one time, which dog tends to win the most? And the man said, it depends on which one I feed the most. Because whichever dog I feed the most, that's the dog that wins. And so the question is, will we feed the flesh or will we feed the spirit? And the encouragement here is feed the spirit. Verse 25. Therefore, and this is application, application, application. Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Here's a picture of unity again. Let's stop playing games with each other and acting like we've got it all figured out because we don't lie to our own bodies, do we? Let's not, we're one body. Let's not lie to each other, all right? It's a picture of unity. All right, verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. The King James Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. And now it's not giving permission to go around with a chip on your shoulder, but what it is doing, it's saying that there is a time for anger. And uh, if you've been under my teaching very long, you know this quote, you can measure a man by What? His what? Yeah. His fruit? Okay. But we're talking about anger. You can measure a man by what it takes to make him angry. Oh, my goodness. That beats me up every time. I mean, the stuff that sets me off most is the petty little stuff. Huh? That makes me a pretty small man. But there are some things worth getting angry over. I mean, when Jesus walked into that temple and saw all those money changers and he knocked their tables over and cleared them off, that was just anger, right? And this is rooted in why Israel needs to be a nation, because the atrocities of the Holocaust are cause for anger. There's a time and a place for anger, all right? Let's go on. Uh, where am I? Verse 27, and do not give the devil a foothold. 
That word foothold is like a stirrup on a horse that helps you get on the, the horse's back. Uh, and it's fascinating to me that, it, that it's put right here after the statement about anger. And, and the fact is, if the devil's on your back, then you need to ask your, yourself the question, what foothold, what stirrup have you given him to allow him to get on your back? And chances are often that it's rooted in some kind of unforgiveness that you're harboring towards someone who has hurt you. And you're harboring that thinking you're going to control that person, but ultimately it's destroying you. And you protest, you say, I will never forgive them. You don't know what they've done to me. And yet you're the one struggling. And this is the kind of foothold that this scripture is talking about. Don't take your anger to bed with you. Deal with it, and then close your eyes and go to sleep. And we'll see this as we go on. Verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. You know, stealing is rooted in, in this statement that says, I deserve what you have. Did you hear that? Stealing is rooted in this idea, I deserve what you have. And, and you, don't, you shouldn't have it if I can't have it. And what this statement does right here, it switches this around. It says, stop looking at what everybody else has and trying to take what they have. Instead, get busy and get to work so that you will be in a position where you have things you can give away. And so it's shifting from being a taker to being a giver. And yet, societally, here we are. We're wondering... What can I take from you? And, 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 and the politicians are arguing and debating over those rich people don't deserve what they have. Surely they've stolen what they have and I deserve a cut of it. And oh my goodness, a nation's in trouble when we find ourselves there. Was that a political statement by chance? Uh-oh. Get to work. Huh? And give. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Look at that contrast right there. We're not letting unwholesome words come out of our mouths, but the words that we are allowing to come out of our mouths are words that build others up, and this is with intention. Oh my goodness, I'm hammered here again. May every word I speak be a benefit to anyone who hears that word. Wow, what a resolve. But remember, it's rooted in where we resulting in how it's lived out in our lives. Going on, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Stop pushing them back. Stop pushing them away. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you. Follow his directions because God has a plan for you. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every kind of malice. And then he ends with this statement. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you the golden rule. That's the attitude that God has for us. Peter once asked Jesus, he said, Master, how many times must I forgive someone who hurts me? Seven? And Jesus said, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. 
Then he tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000. He couldn't pay up, so the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods, to be auctioned off at the slave market. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it back. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. So he didn't just give him time to pay, he erased the debt. That servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him $10. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it back. But he wouldn't do it. He had the man arrested and put in debt, in, in jail, until the debt was paid. The other servants saw what was going on, and they were outraged. So they brought a detailed report to the king who had forgiven this man so much. The king summoned this man again and said, You evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who has asked for for mercy. The king was furious and put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. What has God done for you? Consider it. Personally, my debt was huge. Huge. And I wanted to make it right at one point in my life. Instead, he said, it's covered by the blood of Jesus. And then I, I leave that. And all of a sudden, somebody does something that wrongs me, and I'm holding bitterness against them. What gives me the right? when I've been forgiven so much. Oh God, help me to extend to others the same kind of kindness that you've extended to me. Have you received God's mercy? Have you been pardoned an incredible debt? Are you holding something against somebody else? Let it go. Because the greatest evidence of God's pardon in your life, coming alive, isn't seen by you declaring that, but it's seen in the way you're treating other people. Thank you, God, for your word. Your word is truth. I want to be like you. I want to be like you. Just take a moment and consider these things.